So I think that that the divine is manifest in this present moment. I think that what we experience when we line ourselves up with what's actually happening right now is the divine. That's the force of the universe. That is what is best, as close as we can experience to God. And so that's the fundamental level of what I think I'm trying to do is build practices into my life that allow me to experience the divine as much as possible, which means experiencing the present moment as it's arising as much as possible. And I'm also aware that I'm a human. Welcome today. Uh, this is fun. You'll hear the story about how I met today's participant, Rabbi Ariel Schulklopper. Uh He is a wonderful fellow, and uh, we've been kind of batting back and forth some of these ideas not all that long a time. I mean, I just met him recently, and... Uh, you know, as, as they say, we became fast friends. Uh, in part, we've got pretty similar interests, and um, and that that's kind of unfolded. Uh, I feel a little bit like today's conversation really started to scratch the surface, and uh, I'll be I'll be circling back to a lot of these ideas, some with uh, Ariel, and then some with um, other kind of mystical Jewish practitioners. Um, I had the, he, he recommended that I read a book by one of his teachers, Rabbi Jeff Roth, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's called Me, Myself, and God, A Theology of Mindfulness. Um, both uh, Ariel and, and Rabbi Jeff Roth are uh, mindfulness and meditation teachers. But the main thing today I want to touch on is I want to to read just a paragraph from the beginning of Rabbi Roth's book. The translation most of us are familiar with from Genesis reads, In the beginning God created... Much has been written about this opening line, and when I first started to study the Torah, I understood this as the Jewish story about the creation of the earth. Many decades later, however, I've come to believe that this is not the case. My own interpretation is one that I've developed over the years, partially based on what I have learned from my teachers, but primarily out of my own reflections around the age-old question, what is this life that I have been given? The opening stories of the Torah, I believe, speak to this question. 
They are indeed a creation story, but not about the beginning of Earth. Rather, I believe that these opening stories capture in words, images, and metaphors the arising or birth or creation of human consciousness. Now this is um, certainly a, a, a different way a different way to understand um, holy traditions and their books. And it gets to something that I wish that I will look forward to <laughs> one day, um, uh, you know, even throughout this whole entire project, getting deeper into one of the, I think I referenced this in an earlier podcast, but one idea that I that has I've really been taken with is the layers of interpretation that various traditions have been looking at with their kind of central texts, and I had stumbled across a letter from uh, Dante Alighieri, and also a, a book by Marie Louise von Franz, and certainly Jung talks about the various ways to approach texts and I would actually even enhance that further and say that we can approach our our experience of our reality and I, I won't go deep into this but I'm just briefly because I, I at the end of this conversation with um, Rabbi Schulklapper we we started talking about some uh, kind of charged subjects and I think um, to, to remember that the, th- the thing that we didn't really get into in depth, um, which I'm eager for the day when we do, um, is, is the various layers of interpretation. And I think one thing to be clear on when you're looking at any of these texts is of what layer are you operating? On what layer are you operating? And the, the layers are, and there's many, but this is kind of one system, um, the historic so the concrete reality that, you know, things that in quotations actually happened, which is debatable, of course. Um, the second level is the allegorical. Kind of what does that stream represent as far as patterns that exist and kind of the lessons that are hidden within that we can learn about um, approaching texts and reality. The third is the moral, and this kind of sets up looking at these texts as far as direction is concerned. What is, what is knowing the difference between good and evil, and what is this kind of philosophical, um, you know, <laughs> very deep um, exploration and debate over the nature of evil, for example, is the kind of moral interpretation. And then the anagogic, which is the symbolic, and this was Jung was very taken with this, but and and I, I would I would argue that this is probably the kind of mystical arena when we're kind of looking at and what Jebi, uh, Rabbi Jeff Roth is getting at. Uh, I quote again: Rather, I believe that these opening stories capture in words, images, and metaphors the arising or birth or creation of human consciousness. That's well, a different way of viewing at this. The the creation of the earth is a concrete. Uh, and and you know allegorical interpretation, but looking at these stories is kind of reflecting the evolving human consciousness, and kind of what aspects of our depths are projected out into these stories, or um, 
uh, kind of unconsciously we 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 end up spilling out aspects of our kind of unconscious reality into these texts like uh, mythology and and religious texts so i think that's important to note as certainly as we wade into kind of uh, when religious traditions start to kind of uh, people make claims about certain social structures, you know, hierarchical models of structure of social structure, and uh, kind of what is right and wrong about how to behave, um, who to love, um, who is able to um, sign documents, vote, serve in as a holy person. You know, those are those are charged, and I think when we look at those, when we look at quote the book, um, to answer some of those questions, I think we're moving into some kind of uh, choppy waters because sometimes we're looking at it from a concrete perspective when really we need to be interpreting the text or um, interpreting our reality from kind of more of a from a different layer in those interpretations. Uh, so I want to read the the participant, Ariel's bio, and then we'll get started. Rabbi Ariel Schulklapper is a mindfulness practitioner who got his start under the guidance of rabbis Jeff Roth, James Jacobson, Masels, and Joanna Katz in 2011. Since then, he has attended, managed, and facilitated retreats and mindfulness meditation groups all over the world. He was recently appointed director of the Jewish Mindfulness Center of Houston at Congregation Beth Yeshurun, the largest conservative Jewish congregation in the United States. He earned a degree in philosophy and Jewish studies at UCLA, was ordained at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, and holds an MBA in nonprofit management. Uh, Ariel's a fantastic fella, and um, I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, the other things I want to note quickly is that after last the last podcast, I just couldn't get away from Mango Fish Trap. It stayed in my in my mind. So, the end of this conversation, I played the the whole song of the little clip I played from the podcast podcast with Doctor Nanine Ewing, uh, and the little clip you heard earlier is from Mango Fish Trap. So you can check them out at mangofishtrap.com. M I N G O F I S H T R A P dot com. The theme music you're hearing for this podcast is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And you can reach this podcast at thesacredspeaks.com. And um, if you like it, it certainly helps. Please go uh, go like um, iTunes, SoundCloud. Um, go, go check it out and, and like it. And um, that really helps in accessibility. As of this last week... I'm, I'm kind of doing a dance and celebrating the fact that the podcast has been listened to in over 40 countries, and that's really exciting, something I didn't really think was even possible. <laughs> I thought that was outside of the realm of possibility. Uh, so thanks for listening. This is, uh, this is really such a wonderful experience to be learning from all of the people with whom I speak, and uh, I appreciate I appreciate this material, and I certainly appreciate anyone who's come along for the ride. So thank you, Ariel, for your time, and uh, just thank you, every participant. I just, I, I, it's a blessing to to learn from all these wonderful 
and um, just wonderful people. So I'll leave it there and uh, wish you well. And thanks for listening. Um, see, like, for example, I'm going to edit that out. Uh, All that. I'm going to edit this out. Yeah. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to say thank you for one. Uh, I think it's funny in our story that you and I were were connected through a mutual friend, had coffee together, and then I came back to this office, I sat down in that chair, and within 10 minutes of my rear end hitting that seat, I got a text message from another mutual friend of ours with a photograph of your business card saying you really need to meet this guy so obviously we were destined to to connect um thanks for coming out today taking your time and kind of um yeah i'm happy to be here teaching teaching me so as we're talking through kind of what what to get into i tend to want to you know, get to know you in a new way. And I, you know, you're a religiously minded individual who lives in kind of the religious space, uh, probably all the time. Um, try to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know Uh, that I succeed in that, but I try. Well, and I think then the first question there, that's kind of me, me motivating that but i'm curious what that means to you you know religiously minded yeah i think the entire religious endeavor is connecting with the divine or the highest power of the universe and so for me what it means to be religiously engaged is that i'm trying to do that with every waking moment of my life and so Right. So there's a whole system that I try to put into my life to do that, to help facilitate that. Um, And every other religious endeavor is, I think, the same thing. It's trying to get down to how do we connect best as human beings who are imperfect and sort of animalistic in our needs and our bodily Mm -hmm. needs and the ways that we respond to fear and the way we motivate. And sort of trying to push back against that and and connect in the best way possible. Would you say it's an attitude? Kind of a, an, an attitude or a way of being, way of approaching? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's an, it's an attitude. I think it's also a commitment. It's, <laughs> it's, um, because you can shoot, you can sort of like have a, fluctuating attitude but if you commit to a certain stance then it becomes it can be your whole life that way well so let's let's get into your commitment um i think that we'll we'll certainly get into the religious space sure naturally um, but i want to know 
kind of about your story and how, you know, here I ask you a question about attitude and then you say something very thoughtful, like it's a commitment. So what I think is that that is a, your, your capacity to go there is based upon a number of years of, of experience and thinking about these kinds of ideas, you know, just in living again in that, that space. So as much as you want to, why is that of interest to you? Kind of why, why, why is it that you've, you're living the life of a religious individual so much so that you are a kind of leader and teacher of other people and uh, within your tradition of Judaism? For me, it's not a choice. It's not, it's, I mean, it is a choice in that every day I choose it over and over, but I feel this is not, this is not the kind of word that I think Jews would normally use, but I feel called. I think a lot of Jews would think, oh no, that's a Christian term. You don't, we're not called. We, <laughs> don't cross the streams. <laughs> no, no, that's that. That's not. That's like not Jewish language. But for me, it really is a calling. I don't. I feel like I. There's nothing else I could do. Hmm. There are other. There are. You know. In terms of the way I make a living, there's a lot of ways to make a living. But in terms of what I'm here on Earth to do, I don't feel like that's a choice. I feel like I was put on earth to do a certain thing to help others in certain ways that I'm even sort of struggling to figure out what those are on a daily basis. Um, but as I get closer to that, to living that way, I feel more connected. I feel more uplifted and that's my guide. So I'm sort of doing this like scientific test every day of like, not, well, I wish I was more, maybe it would be better if I was more scientific about it, but I'm sort of trying to figure out, okay, I did this thing that made me feel closer to flow, closer to God, closer to whatever you want to call that. That is, I need to do more of that, right? And how do I replicate the my ability to do that? How do I build my life in such a way that my values are reflective of that, that my the people around me are reflective of that? So for me, it's I don't feel like it's a choice. And I, I, mean, I think I can point to times in my life where that was really clear. I mean, where it felt really, really clear that 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 I needed to do, I needed to be this person who I have, whoever I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and the influences, like my grandfather, who was a religious man, lived in Jerusalem for most of his life, and. When I, I grew up in the States, I grew up in, in West Hills, California. It's a, it's a suburb of Los Angeles. And um, he was quiet and he was deep and he was knowledgeable and he was loving and accepting. And he was the person, he was one of the only people who sort of, when he looked at me, I could tell that he saw something special in me. Hmm. And I think that every one of us needs or could use somebody like that in our lives. Because for me, it, it, it helped me, it helped me see that in myself. 
to, to feel validated and feeling like I had a I had a purpose here that I that I was I'm, I'm here to do something. And um, and that sort of set me that that spark gave me what I needed to get to the next to the next realization and the next realization. Um, I don't think I'm answering your question, but that's sort of no, you're well uh, trying to no. get raw. I'm trying to get as raw as it is because it's that's that I think those are the moments. Those are the moments. It's the I think each of us, if we're blessed enough in our lives, we we encounter people who see us as holy beings and who who see us for more than where we are at that current moment who see a depth in us and who see potential in us that we may not even see in ourselves or that we may feel but need external validation of. And when I think about the people who in my life who are, are the really big moments that shifted me towards this path, it's it always starts with some connection with another human being who was looking at me in that way, who was even maybe even saying something to me to the tune of, I believe in you or I I've chosen you to do this thing because I think that you're capable of it. And I, and I, I, I believe in you. So for me, those are all, it's always those moments, um, that I've, that I can look back to that set me on this path. Mm. I feel like that's my job is to do that for other people who don't feel like they have the strength, who are grieving, who are mourning, who are, lost who are you know in the pits or even who are in a a good way and just um maybe need a little bit of adjustment in their lives to keep going or to to double down and 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 figure out you know what are they made of can they do better you know people who are really fortunate in their lives and and who they're missing some kind of meaning they feel like there's something missing. You know, everything is right in my life, but there's something missing. And I think part of my calling is to help them reach that extra bit, to find that extra piece that that can really bring more wholeness into their lives, more balance into their lives, more divinity, more spirituality, where they may not have seen it. I, I can't help but my mind is kind of going into a couple of different places. When you and I talked about doing this conversation, I said, you know, what's a book that's been really influential to you? And you recommend this, uh, Me, Myself, and God, by a figure I'm sure you would say has been very influential in your life, um, Rabbi yeah. Jeff Roth. Yes. When you think about this story, us talking about kind of what we've, you know, um, everything from your personal story to Judaism and kind of what or and religion what those even mean where does it begin because I don't know that we necessarily need to set this up in a linear fashion but if with this in mind you know this calling you know you live your the vocation of your life is to be a holy person you know a a, a, a person who serves that role for other people where I like who I am now and the way I've sort of structured my my life um, using mindfulness and and Jewish practice as a as a 
as a blending to live my life in a in the best way I can. I think that happened after college. I was at a crossroads point in my career. I you could say I, I took the LSAT. I was like ready to go. I was working in in uh, in pensions, four hundred one k administration, and I I was in my off time like working with attorneys, um, teaching them teaching them Judaism, and I decided that. I needed to go to rabbinic school. It was a sort of about face. It seemed like an about face from the outside. I don't yeah. think, and and if you like turn back the clock in my life, if you asked somebody when they knew me as a teenager, I think 90% of people, maybe there's a few people who would, <laughs> who would say, oh yeah, I totally called it. But I think most people as a teenager would have said to you, there's no way that guy becomes a rabbi. <laughs> I was rambunctious. I was over the top. I was full of energy and I did what teenage guys do, you know. I was I was a little wild. And um, <laughs> That's a relative term though. <laughs> well, right, yeah, like what's wild? How yeah. how wild? Yeah, yeah. You hear your imagination can go crazy yeah. <laughs> with that. Sure. I think I I when I look back on that time, I see a kid who really, really wanted to feel connected to other people and who really wanted to get validation. And the best way I knew through, my, through the culture I grew up in for doing that was through relationships. You know, how can I prove to my buddies that I'm the most manly or that, you know, sort of do something that would make them feel like that guy's the coolest guy. And that was through a lot of ways that I sort of tried to drown that feeling of wanting to connect. And so I was, uh, I was wild because of that. I'm an energetic person, but I think, I, I think our society sort of taught me implicitly maybe sometimes even explicitly, that it's not okay to feel, to have feelings that are other than as a man, as a, as a boy, as a, somebody who's growing up to be a man, other than anger and like, I don't know, horniness. I don't think there's other expressions of feeling that are okay for a man to feel that I, I didn't feel that any of those other ones were okay. If I wanted to feel, if I felt sad, not okay. So I would convert that into anger. If I felt uh, disappointed or I felt overwhelmed or I felt anxious or I felt any of the other variety of feelings that a human being could feel, I would, I would sort of deny those and try to see how I can express those through the two feelings that I thought were okay for me to feel, which are anger and some kind of horniness. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that's just partially, that's also hormonal, right? Like you're going through a lot as a, as a teenager, sure. but that I think society, society didn't help in that way. And so basically all of that built up to a point where I was cutting off 
major parts of my emotional well-being and my ability to feel and my ability to I'm an emotional I was an emotional kid growing up I was when I was really little before I started to feel the, the, the societal molding right I was just I was uh, I was expressive what does that mean to you like what are some examples of that kind of emotionality and I guess what I'm where I go there is okay like how is that showing up for you and how was that being suppressed when I was a kid I I would like sing at the top of my lungs for no for just no reason I would you know I would pick up a guitar not knowing how to play guitar and just strum it and sing and bang on it and and go and in that way if I felt sad I would pout I would cry I didn't allow myself to cry you know it's just sort of the range of emotions mm-hmm. that sort of those are small examples of joyful expression to the that to the in the highest and also sadness in the other and I, I was I rid myself of those of those possibilities and so I didn't cry I think unless I got really really very badly injured in a sport mm-hmm. for probably seven years eight years nine years I don't know maybe ten years from basically age 14 let's say till age 24 23 because I didn't I it wasn't okay for me to feel that kind of sadness sadness was not an okay feeling for me that's how I I interpreted it Mm -hmm. and um yeah so what ended up happening was this critical moment I left my job I went to Israel to volunteer for the ambulance service, the Magen David Adam, because I'm a dual national. My parents are Israeli. I was born in the States, but I have dual citizenship. And I felt like over the years visiting Israel many times that I, that I needed to contribute somehow to this society that had influenced me. And so I went back as a, as a medic. And I'll explain that a little bit. Um, yeah. That dimension of Israel, uh, kind of Israel and civic duty. Yeah, all my Israeli friends growing up, we had this exchange program at camp. I I was a summer camp uh, uh, counselor and teacher and all kinds of things. And the Israelis would come into town. They would bring bring in a bunch of Israelis to sort of teach us about Israel and that we have a connection with them. And all of them were going to the army. I had a bunch of friends personally who had grown up in the United States and also gone to the army. Like they left the United States, went to Israel just to serve in the army. And then some of them came back just right after, or some of them have even stayed and live and continue to live there. Hmm. And for me, I always wanted to go to the army. At some point I told that to one of my Israeli friends, cause I thought, cause you know, it sort of fits into the macho being a man thing, you know, wielding a gun and being in fighting an army and one of them said to me ariel we don't need more guns we need more leaders Mm. we don't need more guns we need you to be the leader you are that was another like microcosm of a moment when somebody looked at me and said i see great potential in you and i don't i don't think he was like 
trying to say this really deep, profound thing, but he was saying, Ariel, you have leadership qualities. We need you to bring those to the fore. We don't need your gun. We don't need, that's not what Israel needs. That's not what the conflict needs. Um, it just sounds like in that moment, I mean, I, my, my thought there was he could, he could have been saying it like without giving a shit, you know, he could have just like been offhanded saying it, but it mattered, it resonated with you so deeply right, that it. Right, I, and I don't know what he, if he meant it so deeply, but right. that's how I took it. Yeah. Um, that's definitely how I took it. So, so the, it, is it two years of service? two and a half i think or three years is that how it works three, right three years for men because there some people listening may not know about so it's yeah it's a conscription army mm -hmm. and so uh everybody goes through to service they do some sort of national service so they either in the army or they do some kind of volunteer thing for for some time unless they have some kind of exemption right and so being that i grew up in the states i had exemption from my local consul general saying so that I, I traveled with this exemption in my passport. It's a just like document that I had to keep with it that said, don't conscript this guy. He's doesn't live in Israel. He lives in the United States. So if I overstayed my time, then they would conscript me. And so um, actually now after at age like 26 or something, they wrote a thing that said he lives in the states full-time he's too old for you to conscript him leave him alone like he's he's out he's out of the service right but at that time it was always a possibility that if i stayed you know i don't remember how many months it is but nine months in a day and i went to the airport to leave the country they would keep me there and say no you're going to the army because you had nine months to be in the country you say nine, nine months in a day. I don't know if it actually happens like this, but that's theoretically, that's the, those are the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt this as a citizen, especially that I had a duty to be, to do something for my, for the country. Israel means a lot in the Jewish tradition. It's, um, it's the, it's, Israel is the 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 aim of most of the the Bible in terms of the five books of Moses it's the it's the the discussion of getting to the promised land to the the holy land beyond the biblical tie where it's sort of if you just look at the Bible it's very clear that Jewish people are tied to the land of Israel it pervades our our prayer books mm -hmm. every every day every time you pray three times a day if you tr pray traditionally in the traditional method which is three times a day as a jew the traditional prayers always point back to jerusalem to israel it's just not even a it's not a debate it's like part of the history and if you look at every single holiday that punctuates the jewish year Somehow it has to do with Israel, Jerusalem, the ancient temple that used to sit in Jerusalem. And having grown up with parents who are Israeli and who lived in the United States and growing up, spending our summer breaks over there, my grandparents still lived there when I was growing up. And then having layered on top of that my education that also emphasized 
connection to Israel and having these Israelis come to camp and talking to them about how great it is to be in Israel and having myself enjoyed time lived in Israel, I think I never took it for granted hmm. that Israel exists. Uh, with with knowing knowing what I know, the fact that half of my family is Polish descent and that they they were killed, a lot of them murdered in the Holocaust. And I don't think that would have happened in Israel necessarily. And that my that the Persian descent, half of my family is of Persian descent. They came over on camel and by foot in the 20s and 30s. So in 1920s and 30s, what it, that was a dangerous trip then. It was not exactly a great neighborhood to walk through. Right. You know, the, we hear stories about my on that side of the family, kids would be snatched on the way. Children, infants would be stolen from people who were trying to make that journey. It was, it was no joke. It was not for granted that that kids would survive that journey, and so I just knew I knowing all of those things, knowing the history of of the persecution of Jews throughout the last millennium, the two two thousand years, knowing that my parents are Israeli, all of my education, et cetera, made me feel like, and also being you know the tough thing to do go to the army that's kind of the, how how much tougher can you be yeah so there's almost like a conflict that's set up if you did not do that you know you're you'd be feeling conflicted or at least i didn't consider it right, right? but you know neither of my siblings had i think ever entertained the idea for me somehow it connected as an idea of something i could do to sort of contribute and i remember i was studying at the at the um Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I was walking down the street one day and I saw this really sort of angry, hot looking man in a, in a uh, tractor doing construction on the side of the street. And I thought to myself, what's to stop him from, you know, taking the tractor into, into traffic. And so strange four hours later on the news that day four hours later on the news exactly where I was walking trailer tractor goes into traffic flips a bus crushes a car kills a woman and it was like it may have even been that guy and I felt to myself like powerless I felt like what am I doing? I'm here, I'm studying, I'm learning Hebrew. And what am I doing to contribute back to the society that's given me so much? And I just resolved in my my heart that I was going to go back to Israel at some point and volunteer in some way that would get me closer to being able to respond to tragedies on the ground if they came up. And for me, that was medical. It was, I'm not afraid of blood. It doesn't get me like I'm really cool and calm under pressure. I'm cool and calm, like period, and even under pressure. So I felt like that was something I could contribute as part of like who I am. And when I came back after college, I knew I needed to sort of prepare myself a little bit for rabbinic school. 
And also I wanted to spend some time doing that, volunteering as a medic. And what ended up happening is I was sort of like on the on the psychological timeline, if you look at it, I was I I experienced something I've never experienced before that most people hopefully should never experience, which was I responded to a bombing. And it was awful to, to see that it was scary. And I don't think scared is a feeling that like a man is allowed to feel either. Uh-huh. And so when I when it and it was off the charts scary because I'm walking onto a, literally a bomb site. Yeah, will you will you start start with the day like this particular day? That day? Yeah. Normal day. Not exactly a normal day. The 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 program I was on was like a six or eight week program, and it was coming to an end. And this is just to get kind of contextual for a second. This is during your two and a half year service. I didn't go to the army. I never went to the army. So you don't have to do the medic thing for two and a half years either. No. So because I had that exemption, I didn't have to do. I didn't have to do anything. I elected to do some. Well, that was volunteering. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had that exemption, I didn't actually have to do anything. I decided I wanted to do something, and so I went back as a medic to to volunteer. And that was an, a program for people from abroad who wanted to volunteer. And so I, yeah. And then how old were you at this point? It's probably 24. Okay. Okay. So regular day. 24, 25, 24. Yeah. Regular day. It was the end of the program. So our crew chief was driving us, driving me and another one of our participants or just me, I don't remember. I think it was just me in the car. We were, took us to Tel Aviv so that we could have a, I was living in Jerusalem. The, the head of this program takes us to Tel Aviv to do a little ceremony where I say a few words as as somebody who is sort of like a natural speaker to the to the group about what our time has meant and how amazing it is that we were able to uh, volunteer and contribute back to this country that means so much to us. And I remember in that speech, I said something like, when everybody else runs away, we run towards. And that's what differentiates us as medics, is that people are scared and they go in the other direction. And we, our job is to be there for people when they're really hurt and suffering. And we're driving back from Tel Aviv and as we're driving up, we're having this like debate in the car about religion. <laughs> Obviously, that's something that was important to me. And I hear like what sounds like one of those um, those trash. What do they call them? The um, dumpsters. I hear what I what sounds like a dumpster being dropped uh-huh. in the distance, and it's just a weird sound. I just it was in my mind. And then we're driving past a building and I and I look and something doesn't seem right. And I tell the driver, stop. I tell my the head of this program, stop the car. And he looks over and he immediately recognizes that the bus across the street, the bus's windows had been blown out. There's only one explanation for the windows being blown out of a bus, which is a bomb. 
And so he said, oh my God, he, he detected that. I didn't know what was wrong, but I said, I told him to stop. He knew immediately when he looked over. And so we got out of the car and there's this like fence in between us and the other side of the street. And he couldn't jump the fence. I could, I was a little more agile. And so I jumped the fence and talked to the, there's a, there are these like police officers in Israel who ride on motorcycles. They wear all black. They're kind of the badass police force. He was the first guy on scene. I asked him, is it clear for me to get onto the scene? Because what we had heard in our training was you don't just run onto a bomb scene. There may be a second bomb. And uh, this guy had already, I guess, swept the area or shut down cell service or whatever they do to make it clear. But I went on onto that scene as the first person in a, in a uniform only because I happened to be in the right place or the wrong place, however you define it. And I did the sort of the first scan of the scene. I was able to go and make sure that everybody was, if they could be breathing, they were breathing. Um, that there were, there were airways weren't obstructed, that, that um, anything that really could be fixed quickly could be fixed and just get a survey of the scene. And it felt like forever. Time basically like slowed down intensely for me. There was, people were in panic. People were looking to me like, like I was gonna, like I could, I could save their lives. That it was as if there was a darkness around us and I was bringing a light around to these people to calm them down a little bit, to bring a little bit of, give them a little dose of my calm. But meanwhile, internally, I was, I was mad. I was mad. What kind of a God could let something like this happen? Um, but I, I knew in that moment that that wasn't the time for that conversation. God and I were going to have to sort that out later. And, um, And so I treated the people as much as I could until the rest of the ambulance force arrived. And I went home that day at the end of the day and I could no longer, you know, I sort of described the path of less and less feeling. Now I couldn't feel anger. I couldn't feel sadness. I couldn't feel any, I couldn't feel anything at all. It was like the valve that was already on slow, sort of slow drip in terms of emotion had just been totally closed off and I could no longer feel anything. And I couldn't go on like that. I just, I knew that I couldn't, it was, a, I, I just, for me, that's, for me, that's living as a dead, as, as, a, as a zombie. I'm living as a dead human being. If I'm not able to process emotion, what, like just because you breathe doesn't make you alive hmm. for me and that was when I knew I needed to find something I needed to do something I needed to find something I didn't know what but I needed something to to release me to allow me to start to feel again I actually didn't know that's what I needed I just knew something needed to shift um, at the same time as I was in 
the service of the in the ambulances, I was also learning in yeshiva, which is like a seminary, preparing myself for the rabbinic school journey, sharpening up my skills, using dictionaries, trying to use dictionaries like the one you have over there. <laughs> a very expert level Jastro dictionary. <laughs> I feel like a child compared to that thing. I don't, I don't That know. dictionary is a serious hefty dictionary. You need to really know Hebrew grammar, biblical grammar, Aramaic grammar in order to access that book. And it's not easy. So, right. Which is yeah, why so, it's probably going to be a gift to somebody. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you need one? <laughs> Have two at home. <laughs> sure. So I, I, I was trying to sharpen that, that side of mm -hmm. myself up at the same time and sort of ignoring the fact that, or like sort of just trying to find the right opportunity to, to open up in a new way. And I saw this chart this uh this thing on the on the bulletin board that said come try jewish mindfulness meditation on a retreat for seven days or ten days however you want and i and i thought ten days that's extreme but i know i need to do something i don't really know what meditation is i don't know what mindfulness is but retreat sounds like it would be therapeutic or at least restful and i signed up for this retreat and my life changed forever from there. How? The teachers that I had on retreat, Jeff Roth, Joanna Katz, James Jacobson, Mazels, showed me on that retreat that it's possible and okay for me to feel again. That they give me the tools and the container. And part of, part of that is them and their teaching. Part of that is the other 50 people who are sitting on retreat who created the space. And part of it was my own readiness to do anything to shift where, where I was stuck this feeling of not being able to feel numbness really well is it um because the situation with the bombing was so extreme i'm assuming that that's kind of what woke you up to the feeling component my, my assumption here is that you weren't saying to yourself oh, i'm a young guy growing up feeling kind of a machismo sense of self and no. i don't really feel my feelings no. So yeah. I'm assuming because it was so extreme that you were then, you then became acutely aware of not only that you weren't feeling your feelings in that moment, but you hadn't really been, you know. I'm actually only now even starting to see that reality. Wow. Yeah. All these years later, it's been, that was in 2011. Hmm. I'm only now starting to see the sort of back priming, the way that I got to that moment. I think in that moment, I only knew that I could no longer feel. That's all I knew. All I knew was that I couldn't, I couldn't live like that. I don't know if this is because I want to go. I'm, I'm really interested. Like how, how amazing to, to find that retreat in the moment and 
you know, here we are sitting with our copies of this book next to us. Right, Jeff Roth, who was one of the teachers there who sat across from me, I remember it. And he said to me, he said to me, what's wrong with, you know, what's wrong with feeling that? Wow. Or, you know, you, you're justifiably, you should justifiably feel upset with God. Or he's, he's sort of just giving me the permission to be wherever I was. And that I was not going to be drowned by my emotion, that it was going to be okay. That I was going to be okay. If I could just, I could feel it and be okay. And that, and he sort of, over the years, we've been, he's worked, he and I have worked together very closely and working on the way, the mental blocks that I have around being able to feel and what I'm, what I am able to feel pretty well, what I, what I have difficulty accessing, et cetera. But it's not, it's, it's a process, it's a journey that all began in that, in that moment on that retreat. What do you say to like one of those, uh, maybe I can answer my own question, but what do you say to somebody who says, well, how do you access those things? Like, how do you, how do you begin to process through that? Yeah. So I work with people on that a lot now as a teacher and it's, it's people who you'd be surprised come up with that. I mean, therapists, people who have been doing that for other people all their lives or, um, you know, I think it's mostly men who have that difficulty accessing. But I, 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 the first thing I do is, is if we're working with our breath, let's say, and that's their object of attention, they need to focus on watching their breath. I'll usually use choose one part of your breath and if they are focusing on anywhere in their in their head space, in their in their nose, in their mouth, I'll force them to begin to pay attention in their stomach, in their chest. Because now, well, that's where feelings are located. For me, at least, most of my my bodily awareness of feelings is starts somewhere below my neck. Most, not all. So I have them just beginning, just to begin to start to notice sensation around even just something innocuous that's sort of easy, easy, quote, easy to note in their breath, bring that into the body. Start to notice what's going on in your body. And then I work with people on pain and, uh, and whatever is arising in their body and have them sit with that and then peel back the layers slowly. Remember, for me, it was a sort of watershed moment when I realized one disappointment that I had been carrying around with me since I was probably five years old or something. I was on retreat and I felt intense pain in my knee. And my teacher said, just soften to the pain. Just be with, be with it instead of trying to shift around while I'm, while I'm in meditation for the half an hour or 45 minutes that we're sitting there. So, you know, five minutes into this 45 minute sit, my knee's on fire. It's throbbing, it's crazy. And I know I have 40 minutes left to sit with it. And so I soften and I soften and I soften and I soften as much as possible. And then it just clicked like a light bulb. All of a sudden I remembered that that feeling 
that I was having, that feeling of pain, the feeling around the pain, even the my response to that pain was the feeling that I had when I was five years old, laying in my bed, having growing pains, literally growing pains. My body was growing and having been turned away from my parents' bedroom door, because that's annoying, right? You're as a five-year-old, you're a five-year-old and you're in pain in the middle of the night. But as a parent, how many times can you be with a kid who's growing, who's having pains from growing in the middle of the night? There's a certain amount of pain that is just inherent to growing up, yeah. becoming a human being that is not, your parents are never going to be able to, nobody's ever going to be able to have for you or really abate for you. Right. And so I remember the feeling of disappointment and the feeling of, um, like a, a growing up moment of disappointment, really, that my parents can't keep me from feeling this pain. They had told me, like, there's nothing, you know, we'll give you Tylenol, but there's no amount of Tylenol or love that we could give you that's going to make that go away. You have to grow up. That's part of becoming a human. And I had held on to that for 20 years for that moment. That that physical, that emotional memory had stored itself in my body somewhere, somewhere, and it was coming out now through my knee. And I was only able to get there by asking, by sitting with that pain and asking the question, is there something, is this an old pain? Is this an old pain? Is this an old sensation or is this something new? And when I when I asked the question, is this old, is it an old pain? It went to that place. And it was for me, it shifted everything. It shifted my ability to feel, my ability to sit with like all of those emotions came up. They came welling up in that in that moment. And I credit the practice. I credit my Yeah, it's not something you can teach. No. That's an experience you have to have. That's an experience. And so what we try to do as teachers of this is try to point people back to the tools over and over, help them build the capacity to be with and to pay attention and to be open. And what I've found is that when people really stick to it, they end up having their own things that come up. It's not, it's not, it's not going to be my realization, but they may realize every time I grab a chocolate, it's because I feel sad or, or, you know, or whatever. Or every time I have a, a fantasy about, you know, going skiing or even something sexual, mm-hmm. it's because I'm feeling unloved. That's my way of soothing that. Or I'm feeling overwhelmed or anxious. And so those realizations slowly, or every time I'm starting to feel super tired, right? I say this a lot. My friends ask how I'm doing, but people ask, how are you doing? I'm tired. I'm tired. Tired is also an escape. Tired can be, I'm actually feeling anxious or I'm actually feeling sad. Or I'm actually feeling whatever I'm feeling. Scared. And instead of feeling that way, I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel tired. It's a sort of mechanism. It's a known hindrance. So I have these have now these these mechanisms that I know when I when I start to crave certain kinds of food I need to check inside what's going on I know when I start to feel quote tired 
but I've I'm fully rested and I'm eating well and all the things mm. that are that are you know sort of common sense everything is in the right place. I know that's a that's a signal I need to I need to check out what's going on underneath. That's all a product of this practice. I think I'm trying to think about because you you came back from Israel with this calling. Is that? I think I had the calling before, but that was like the that was the shifting point of like how to access the calling, how to sort of I knew I needed to do something, but I didn't know what. And Where I'm was still, the retreat? That was in Israel. That was in on a kibbutz in Israel. Kibbutz Hanaton. Did you go to like Jewish day school? Yeah. So your whole life you'd been I went to a day school through eighth grade. Uh-huh. And then high school I got to the real world. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? The real world? Yeah. <laughs> the real world uh was a little a lot wilder than my insulated <laughs> youth i sort of encountered things i never could have even imagined i, I remember sitting on, standing on the quad one day during one of our breaks and i saw a kid literally punch out our dean one of the deans it was something that was inconceivable in my mind it wasn't even possible in the realm of possibilities in my, <laughs> oh my mind gosh. and then and then live in front of my eyes things like that happen you know i i remember walking down the stairway in between classes and somebody taking a hit off of a little one hitter like marijuana mm -hmm. like walking between classes i didn't know that was a i didn't even know that was a possible to do some to just think you could get away with something like that. I mean, I saw people jump the fence and I saw things that just never happened in a private school. Kids would talk about, you know, all of a sudden drugs were a possibility. All of a sudden ditching was a possibility. I don't know how you would ditch in a school of, you know, a class of 25, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but okay. in a class of a thousand, might be sure. able to get away with some things. So that was real that was real world. I made friends with people who knew how to find marijuana. I mean, you know, I just I I gravitated towards the things that would make me macho and cool. And uh I think my my grades definitely suffered for it hmm. in high school. But I wanted to feel I needed to feel some feeling of being accepted. It's funny. I actually wrote that down earlier. Um, a kind of desire to be liked. We don't talk about that. You know, we don't, you know, we say it. I noticed that, you know, amongst young people and even adults, you know, like give up the desire to be liked. you know, don't, don't do that. Well, that's strong. Yeah. Like that's a pretty foundational yearning and urge, you know, I think this, if it would be a, a lot better for us to talk about how you're going about making that happen as opposed to just kind of amputating that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Right. So I, I like that. 
it was nice of you to say it earlier. I mean, speak openly about it because the <laughs> we talk about like, you know, don't don't care what other people think. Bullshit. Right. I, I yeah. Mean, right. What what world are we living right. in? That like, like, uh, who are you caring about? What parts of yourself are you trying to emphasize? Um, what does your community emphasize and reinforce? Like those may be better questions than just trying to like not care about whether what other people think. I just can't. I can't imagine what that was like for you to to go from this kind of insulated environment into this. Like what sounds relatively speaking, it sounds pretty chaotic. I mean, it was not that chaotic. I'm sort of pulling out the exciting parts, right? But yeah. But for the most part, class was class and kids were kids, but mm -hmm. there were avenues open that previously weren't. And there were possibilities of, in what was happening visually, at least, that were that had never happened before. Like kids didn't talk back to teachers in my 25 person class in the right. way that people did. You know, I remember watching a watching a kid roll a blunt in the middle of class <laughs> under the desk like nothing was like like nothing was happening like it was just normal to do that i mean maybe that's because it was los angeles la or i don't know what i don't know what happens in other schools i know that in my school that 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 happened and so I, it was just you know the worst thing we did was like try to whisper across the room or you know pass a note or something <laughs> that was we tried to you know get the hall pass and time it up with our buddy or you know so that we could just talk outside right we weren't like having a drug deal but we were also younger we we're also in eighth grade so i don't know how much of that is just the age i don't know i'll jump in with you like i think i saw my first joint when i was on the bus in sixth grade okay and it felt like another world you know like i had now I, I similarly i grew up in a pretty insulated elementary school environment but my my middle school experience was pretty intense uh a guy walked up to me once and showed me a clip from a 45 caliber pistol and said hey if you ever need this here's the combination to the locker or where the gun is and i went whoa what in the hell do you like <laughs> what would i ever need that i don't understand like to do what you know so yeah the the kind of that chaos i i can relate with you in not the same way and that i didn't have the kind of religious container that was present with me but i did have a, a similar kind of like oh my gosh you know what the world you know the real quote world that you feel whoa um that's kind of the end of childhood in some way you know you see your dean punched out and that was like of, whoa. like like what does that say about authority and about limits you know, physicality like yeah what are uh, ditching i mean all these themes that you're talking about are hop in the fence you know like go on going on the other side right i never where, did that but where innocence is and like right right that's wild hmm, okay we don't need to go now too yeah. far down that rabbit trail but <laughs> i so if we pick up that thread back in your you've gone to this retreat mm -hmm. 
and I, I'm kind of, I love that imagery of, uh, of your knee and to have that insight that just sets you up on a, I don't know. My, my feeling as you were talking about that was enormous curiosity, like kind of one of those if then statements about like, well, if that happens, like then what else, what else can happen? You know, what, what does that mean to my life and to the ways in which I relate to my body and my experience? So tell me a little bit about Jeff Roth and how that kind of leaving Israel, coming back here. Right. What happens next? So when I hit that retreat, that first retreat, I had no idea what I was going and getting into. I literally, all I knew was how long I'd be there. And I arrived and they gave me this like schedule and it said, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, or like whatever, breakfast, <laughs> sit, walk, sit, walk, dinner, <laughs> you know, like what sit, the hell walk. What are we gonna do? Like what the <laughs> hell, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> Like, that's it? That's what we're going to do is sit, walk, sit, walk, dinner? I do that every day already. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. I'm coming to this thing to do this? And I had no, I had really no idea. I, did, I didn't, I had done some mindful activity mm-hmm. through therapy in, in my teenage years, but I didn't know that's what it was. I'd done, um, but never in that context. And during the retreat, there's always time for almost every long retreat like that, seven days, there's time for you to check in with the teacher in a group setting and there's time for you to check in with the teacher in a one-on-one setting. Uh So that, because it's a silent retreat, so nobody's talking to each other and if you have questions or whatever you're going, whatever's going on in your head, nobody knows what's going on until you sort of talk to somebody. And Jeff, I remember sitting across from him and he made, he just told me, you're going through something deep right now because I was processing the bomb and he made himself available to me. He said, just, I can be reached by Skype and by email and I'm going to be supportive of you in whatever way I can on your journey. And so when I got back to the States, a few months later and he lives in he lives in New York. He came to Israel just to do the retreat. Now, uh, Rav James, one of the other teachers lives in Israel, at least now he does. So, he we just kept in touch and all those years he's been I've had discussions with him. He I, he gives me practice instructions as a teacher of you know, ongoing practice, things I can work with, tricks I can work with in terms of overcoming whatever I'm working with, you know, whatever, whatever it is coming up over the years. And so he's really been a mentor to me and somebody who's really very important to me in terms of um, supporting me on my journey and being somebody who knows my backstory and who knows what I'm working with and can reflect back to me where I'm at and give me tools of, of practice to work with and challenging my assumptions and, and challenging the challenging me to push myself further in my practice. He was the one who who sort of insisted that I begin teaching 
a few years ago. But aren't you, I mean, you're a rabbi. Right? I'm a rabbi, yeah. Isn't that, aren't, isn't, so. So I would me... teach Jewish practice, no problem. Right. But to be teaching mindfulness and Jewish practice in, in right. a blend, that I felt like I needed, I, I just didn't feel like he's been doing this 30 years, you know. I've been doing this since 2011, I'm seven years now. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was, I, did, I just, there's no like, no certification, pro, like there's no like, there there is certification, I did get certification, but you could get a certification with a year's experience. Right. But that's very different than certification with five or 10 years experience or, and also, you know, what did you do in that year? How much did you practice? Um, how deep did the did the practice go? How many retreats did you go on? I'm I'm I want two things. Um, I have a couple of questions about in in particular Judaism. Yeah, and I want to be aware of time. Yeah, so it's like eleven forty-three. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me let me just. See what I'm up to here. Okay, I'm good. I have us booked until one. So. Oh, okay, good, good. Um, so I had three hours. That's great. Time. I've got a twelve thirty thing. Okay. And so if we, if we can go till then, that would be. And he said it's like what almost twelve now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. Do you want to switch directions in terms of the content here? Well, yeah, I want to go. I want to go into. Well, no, I think. I think if we go into like Judaism, yeah, because I'm really interested in kind of hearing more about that. You know okay. what you're talking about as a rabbi teaching Jewish thought, and uh, and then you've you've kind of linked that up with mindfulness. Earlier, yeah. you talked about a Jewish mindfulness retreat. Yeah. Yeah. So my, I thought, okay, what does that mean? Uh, so I think if we kind of lay the foundation, like, you know, what is Judaism and kind of what's your understanding of that? The, the, when, when you and I first met and had coffee, you said something about texts. Yeah. You know, and That's you're looking over there at my big book that I am, you know, I have oh, no that. ability to understand. Uh, <laughs> you could understand. <laughs> like what? What is a textologist and how that informs your practice? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. And then also kind of Jewish mysticism, you know, that that kind of, that, so kind of grounding ourselves in that and then seeing where we go from there. Because I think we'll pick up on your relationship with Jeff. Jeff, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Where does this, where does this part of the conversation begin? How do you, and as like, I don't know, I think that's a good question. Like, what is Judaism? To me, Judaism is a practice, practices around developing a relationship with the divine as an individual and as a community and making the world better as agents of the divine. 
I'm purposely using the word divine instead of God because I think people get, their minds get twisted up when you say that word. A lot of baggage there. So much. But if I say the power of the universe, then people don't get so mm -hmm. caught up. And that's what I meant. That's what I mean. I think that each of us are infused with a divine spark and that our job in life is to get more connected with that and see how that can guide us in becoming better and becoming uh, agents of change and of of possibility of of doing the work to heal the world and ourselves and the people around us it's a real social component to that yeah mystical i think i would call that mystical because it's sort of assuming uh there's it's assuming a force underneath what can be seen it's assuming that there's a purpose i'm assuming that i, I live like that knowing that I, there's no way for me to confirm this force there's no way for me to confirm that that's the correct way or that i'm asking even the right questions but when i live like that I find myself to be a better person. I think the people around me would agree that I've become a better person. And that means that we're doing we're doing the right things. It's sort of the same thing with all of the practices. If you if you can if you turn around and your life and you're not a better human, I don't know what you're sort of you may be wasting your time with whatever practice you're doing. Yeah, there's no way to confirm that your the pain in your knee was housing some, you know, no early way. experience either, you know. Right. Right. That may just be a story I tell myself, but that story I'm telling myself also helps me deal with life better. Has meaning for you. Right. So what's a better person? How do you how do you know you're becoming a better person? I become kinder, more patient more willing to act and help other people, to be more compassionate with myself, with other people as well. So th those are just markers for me that I'm becoming better externally. I also feel more settled as things go. I think I feel better. I feel calmer. I feel, I mean, I, I'd speak and my voice sounds calm and People will look at me and they're like, wow, you're so calm. How do you do that? And I'm like, I teach meditation. You know, they're like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. That makes sense. But really inside, there's a lot going on. Right. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of feeling. There's a lot of emotion that I just don't surface. Part of that is like my, my upbringing. I needed to show on the outside poker face, you know. So part of my work is also bringing that out to the to the so that people can see what I'm what I'm feeling as I'm feeling it in a in a wise way not just so that everybody can see what I'm working with yeah so for anybody who doesn't because I think a lot of people just don't I, I don't think a lot of people kind of understand that's a big statement it's struggle <laughs> struggle to understand religion yeah in the first place and then if somebody grows up or is kind of aligned with one particular tradition they kind of really don't understand another maybe you have this thought but what do you wish more people knew about 
Where, where do people misunderstand Judaism? Sorry, that was a click you're going to have to edit out. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to answer that question because I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I don't fully know what people think about Judaism from the outside. So I don't know how to answer that question Yeah, because I'm living on the inside. I think... Most people don't understand or don't consider, and this is not just with Judaism, but any religion other than your own, my own or your own, is I think everybody's really trying to do their best. I think everybody is really trying to do the best they can with what they've got in terms of being human and getting through this the best they can and that's the truth that's the truth with jews and muslims and christians and buddhists and you name it and there's no two jews who believe the same thing fully so and i think that's true of every human we all see things a little differently. To recognize that there's so many different ways to be a Jew, that there are, you know, my wife is a rabbi. I'm a rabbi. We both were trained in the same place. We're both con quote unquote conservative rabbis, mm -hmm. which is a stream of Judaism that falls between Orthodox and Reform. And we see the world differently. You know, Jeff and I, Jeff Roth and I both teach mindfulness, mindful Judaism, heartful Judaism. And we have, we see the, the, we see the importance of, of different aspects of Judaism in different proportion. It's just the way that we each come to the, to the picture with our backgrounds and our theology and, whatever it is, even though on the practice level, we really agree exactly how to teach this. Not, you know, he's still teaching me how to teach this better, but. Mm -hmm. well, let's go into theology. Sure. How do you, how do you become a student? Or what is, you know, I guess let's stick with kind of basic questions, right? What is your, your kind of theology and how do you engage it and deepen your understanding of the divine. So I think that that the divine is manifest in this present moment. I think that what we experience when we line ourselves up with what's actually happening right now is the divine. That's the force of the universe. That is what as best as close as we can experience to God. And so that's the fundamental level of what I think I'm trying to do is build practices into my life that allow me to experience the divine as much as possible, which means experiencing the present moment 
as it's arising as much as possible. And I'm also aware that I'm a human. And I think it's important as a human being who's trying to get connected with, with the divine, for me, to also cultivate, actively cultivate mind states that are wholesome. What that means for me is waking up every morning and trying to cultivate a sense of gratitude for the abundance of my life, for all the things that went right. I think that we can do that. We can, I know that we can do that. When I, when I do that, it changes the quality of my interaction with other people. It allows me to be more kind in my assumptions about what's going on with other people. I practice a self-love. I practice love of others. And I, I try to flex that muscle over and over so that when I encounter people in the street, when somebody cuts me off on the freeway, when I'm having a difficult conversation with a coworker or a boss or with a spouse or a family member, I can meet that moment in a way that's primed to be holier. So I see Jewish practice as a method of getting us towards that towards closer towards that or being having the accessibility of that awareness of the divinity in the person sitting across from me more at hand so that there's less barriers between me feeling recognizing your divinity in any moment in any given moment with all of what's going on in my own psyche to be able to recognize that quicker, right? They show psychological tests. I think it's Kahneman, um, hmm. thinking fast and slow. Uh -huh. I just got that book. And they show how if you show the, I don't remember, I may, I'm probably misquoting it, but if you show the, uh, the word bird to somebody before you start to like subliminally even before, so they can't even notice that they've seen it. And then you show them a picture of a bird their recall, their ability to identify pigeon or robin or whatever is going to be faster. They're going to be able to more quickly understand that, pick up the word for the thing that you're trying to show them, the image you show them. I think we do that with prayer. I think we do that with practice. Hmm. I think religious practice is meant to, it can be leveraged for that. I don't think it's always been doing that. I don't think that most people are doing that. I think that's why religion is... People are moving away from religion now because it's not helping them. They don't see how it's helping them realize that potential. I think reinfusing practice, religious practice, and not, this is not just Jewish practice, but religious practice with the end goal. What's the point? What's it's not? So Martin Luther King talks about the danger of religion being that our churches will get in, caught into counting the easiest metric, which is how many seats are in the cushion, right? Jumboism, he calls it. That's the danger, is that we're going to just try to be as big as possible. Asses in the seat. Asses in the seat, right? Mm -hmm. Pews. Mm -hmm. People in the pews. But he says, you, what we're trying, we're, he's, he and I, I, I agree with him. That's not the point, right? That is the, that is the outcome of if you're getting it right. That's not the point. 
The point is not that I have a thousand people in the room. The point is that I have a thousand people in the room who walk out a different person than they were an hour before. That's the point. They, they, that, that each person in the room, that it, as many possible people as I can get in that room, percentage-wise, can be a new human being, can see the world differently, can interact on a more divine level, can live a tenet of the religion that makes the world better, that makes them better, that makes them more wholesome. That's the point. That So I, and I'm not sure that all religions are doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think people are satisfied with how many people are in the seat. But I don't think they're asking themselves, how did I move the needle on the meaning this person derives from life, on the 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 way that this person feels now like they have they actually have an impact on the world and it's important the words they use and it's important the way they carry their conversations with the you know, just the the person who the busboy, the person who could be sort of otherwise invisible in the world. That's to me what religious. That's the endeavor is to 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 help people, to help her. First for myself, right? I have to try to figure out what works for me. Otherwise, I'm phony. And then how I can help other people in their own way, to get to that point, to to move the needle in their own lives. I think people are they're see, they're seeking that. That's what they want to be. That's what they want to happen when they go to to church, or to synagogue, or to the mosque. And if they don't, if that doesn't happen, they're not wrong to walk away from religion and say that's you know nothing exciting there. And I think that's what's been happening is people have been going and showing up and not getting what they need. Part of that is on them. Part of that is on the, the person who walks through the door and their willingness to engage. But another part of that is the way that we're what we're the way that we're measuring, the way that we're setting up measures, the way that we're the goal, the end goal and being really clear on what we're trying to what kind of environment we're trying to foster what end goals do we want in terms of the way people act Mm -hmm. the way that people um you know i don't i forget the word exactly but um yeah the way that people are affected by the religion the practice why are you jewish and not you know, Hindu. I was born Jewish. <laughs> I don't have any, I wasn't, I don't think I chose that. I was born into this. And I see myself as part of a lineage of people born into this and people who choose in, choose into this. So I actually think that people who convert to Judaism are just souls finding their way back. Mm-hmm. I don't see them really as choosing. They say Jews by choice, but I don't really think it's a choice. I think that's a that's coming back to who you always were. Your soul I, finding its way back. The the reason I ask is because there's that old argument about universalism and In particularism, know, right? Yeah. Are the are the traditions kind of similar? And I, you know, you're a yeah spiritually minded person you know judaism is a has been not only part of your birth and your development but you know uh, you make a willful choice you know despite yeah. that you don't 
I you're sure called do. to do it every you, day. So, but you're you're called to it in a particular way because when you, you study, I guess what that that maybe gets to the real point of that question. Studying Judaism, what does that mean to you? What do you do when you study? So there's there's the, there's the study that I do when I'm interacting with other people and sort of packing and unpacking what's happening, what has happened, etc. And then there's the text, which for me is a rich part of what I do. Is I love, I get excited when I'm reading uh, an ancient text and I'm puzzling through dictionaries like the one you got over there. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what is the intent behind the, the, the written word and what, what was the question they were asking or what were they grappling with that made them write the thing and finding meaning in there that I can, that, that not is just not only is interesting to me. So some of that is just exciting. The interest of like, Oh wow, that's such a cool story. Or other times it's more like that thing that they just said totally applies to my life today. And it was written 500 years ago, thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. And, and I think that a lot of times what may, really excites me is when I can find something that has yet to be translated or that has been translated, but um, translation is always interpretation that has been translated, but I find new meaning in other than what the way it was translated. I can find a different angle to look at it that informs the way that I'm, that I'm things I'm developing in myself that helps me to further my journey towards being more aware. And what's been missed in or lost, missed or lost in translation, Nuance. So, um, something I was, I think that's probably why you bought the dictionary. I'm not sure totally, but something that is interesting about the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew language is that oftentimes a single word, a, a word has a root. It has a three letter root, or sometimes there are exceptions to the three letter, but mostly three letter roots. And that root can be reconfigured in different ways with different punctuation, with a different grammar to mean different things, totally different things. So when you translate a text, oftentimes it's not totally clear which one is the right one. You have to sort of use either context clues from that verse, or you have to use the commentaries on that verse to guide your understanding. When not, it's not necessarily totally clear from the verse itself what the meaning is. If you go through a, a critical edition of the Bible in Hebrew, if they're being honest, many times if there's a translation, there's going to be a ton of asterisks all over the translation with at the bottom not, uh at the bottom, it would say under the asterisk, it would say meaning unknown. And we guess, we have to guess sometimes. And so for me, it's playing around in the guessing. 
and being able to play with the language in a way that I think this is a deeply rabbinic thing to do. Rabbis have been doing this for many years. Is doing it's called philology. They play around with the language and and reorder the words and and reorder the the letters in the word to mean different things or even play around with the numerology the 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 number each uh each letter sure in the hebrew language has a number assigned to it and you can play with the numbers and um and the value of the total words number like you can find uh equivalencies in words that don't relate to each other and and then draw parallels. And so for well, me, that's interesting. All that is interesting. It is, it, but of course, I'm kind of wanting to make that concrete. Like, sure. What are some things that you comment? So some misunderstandings you commonly see in the text. In the well, in the text, but also in people's interpretation, but primarily in the translations of the text. So one of the big ones that is uh, is thrown around pretty liberally <laughs> that's not a good word for it but the one of the big ones is the prohibition on that people see in the text of the prohibition of homosexuality mm -hmm. there's no word for homosexuality in the biblical hebrew it's no that's not a word that's to say it's somebody cobbled together the concept of the, the literal words like a man shall not lie with another man as he does with a woman to homosexuality. Mishkav zahar, men laying with men, right? So you can take that, those, those words in Hebrew and you can play with the ability, like what does that actually mean? What does it mean for a man to lie with a man as he would with a woman? Or you can sort of layer over a translation that just makes it really clear what you think that is, which is men loving each other. But that might not be the same thing. Maybe there's a coercion involved in the in the other version, or maybe there's a power dynamic that we haven't that we need to think about in that other version, that more complicated Hebrew version that can be parsed out. What have you come to understand about that? I've come to understand that it doesn't matter what the way you translate it really, there are competing principles within the tradition. And the one that overrides is not a prohibition on homosexuality. It's the overriding principle needs to be honoring the your fellow creation and allowing them dignity so for me is more important than whatever the specific on what men do with each other in the bedroom it's, it's like none of my business totally none of my business and so yeah, I'm not sure I'm totally answering your question, but the way that I, I translate that is in the way that my teacher, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, has said it, and I'm probably messing it up. I'm sorry if you're <laughs> hearing this, Rabbi Artson, but <laughs> that, that 
pointed to that that phrase pointed to a power dynamic of what it used to mean for a man to be with another man was a power dynamic somebody in power taking advantage of somebody with lesser power and that that's what's prohibited in that moment Guys, radically different proposition that is a radically different proposition and that's what rabbis do is rabbis have the have the ability the leeway to reinterpret what the literal word of the law of the torah is of the of the bible is in in a way with context in a way that in a way that maybe even radically reads it radically the other way and there are many many examples of that throughout the tradition and part of that, and that is informed by reprioritizing the will to, to go there, the will to even go to that place of trying to reimagine how to read those, those few words, the sentence that that arrives from. The desire to do that comes from a reprioritization of what's, imp- most, what's the most important thing. I, if I'm it's funny like i i immediately start thinking about how entire cultures and ways of being have been formed around these kinds of interpretations misinterpretations and uh, you know i'm i'm i don't i don't really i i care I'm, I'll, I'll say this like it doesn't really matter how if you answered the question or not what you did but it doesn't really matter i'm glad you went there to talk about yeah not where i thought this interview was going yeah no i'm glad you did i mean i'm i'm really i'm really happy that to hear that from somebody who knows what in the world they're talking about when it comes to your your ability to read and interpret aramaic and hebrew and kind of looking at these original texts and seeing how far we've come how far we've we've gone wrong sometimes yeah yeah well i'm glad you said that right yeah because it's not all no i i i don't know reading these material this this kind of material i get just a sense of i get a sense of calling you know that i i really like discovering um submitting myself to the discipline and the practice of really getting curious about these words thoughts feelings behaviors um, manifestations of what we would call the divine and and then changing your life right change ch- changing your life to be set in such a way that kind of aligns with what's discovered when somebody's looking into that you know yeah because you that i don't know that that so here the other thing i thought about not only homosexuality but i thought of you know how how genesis has influenced cultures and people so enormously. Uh, the uh, another way of I think m- misinterpretation would be kind of the treatment of women. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, my wife is a rabbi, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested what you what you would say about that kind of interpretation of you know if we look at the text and I wish I had it in front of me, but. Um, if we look at the text and say, you know, okay, the rib is taken from the man, out of the man, right? Make it What's woman. your read on that? So generally, I think that our tradition, our traditions are informed by 
what society we are in. And I think what, I'm not the first person to say this. I think that our tradition was written in a way that made sense for the people of that time. And it is every time we rewrite. So whatever I contribute to the tradition, God willing, I could be, I could merit to even do that. In a hundred years, 200 years, 300 years, a thousand years, it'll be stale. You know, there are going to be some, hopefully there are some things that, some kernels in there that can inform people's lives, but they may look at me as a Neanderthal in terms of the way I understood the value of different types of people or the way that I understood science or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Because there's going to be inevitable shifts in paradigm. And I see that as the job of of a rabbi today who's a, who's who's working with the faith is to update is to be able to take the kernels of beauty and um the the really the gems and bring them forward the ones that help us get closer to connection with god and take out the ones that are that are hurtful take them out just sort of work them work new ways of understanding them as as best as we can with our, all of our mental capacity to give credit to the people who wrote to the to the to the wise sages who wrote and also understand that they were they were limited in their understanding and they were doing the best they could and that and know that that's the truth about myself too that i'm also in that category of doing the best i can and giving them the same the same credit and so when I look at the, at the tradition, I see the way that women were treated. I think that for that time, it was great. It was revolutionary. It was, it was in the Jewish tradition, especially to give women the, um, you know, I could just, I could sit here and defend it, but it's not, it's not sufficient for our time. I could, I could defend the ways that for the time that they lived in, our sages built a system that was really pretty radical in its defense of women and guaranteeing their their rights but if i try to impose that same system on today's day i'm living backwards mm -hmm. I'm not i'm not acknowledging the fact that i think women are have have equal rights and status and that would be for me that that's not that's not acceptable so I've worked that I, I, I think I chose the, the stream of Judaism that I chose because of the fact that I'm not willing to turn my, my back on that fight. I think that's something that's, that's an ongoing battle that to, you know, traditional Judaism today even doesn't accept the witness, the eyewitness of a woman or like as a, as a signator on a, on a legal document, a woman can't sign because of a variety of reasons, legally. And I reject that, I reject that. I say, there's no, there's no reason that we need to hold on to a vestige like that that's so hurtful. So the way I sort of approach on a metaphoric level our tradition is mm -hmm. if it's, it's like a doctor. Doctors are not just gonna, an ethical doctor, an ethical doctor is not going to just do surgery to take out a part of you that's working fine and not hurting anything. But the second, it's like an appendix, right? A lot of 
a lot of our of the religious traditions are not here and not there. They maybe don't serve a function that you know what they do. I don't even know. I'm not sure I know what appendix does. Maybe maybe there is something it's supposed to do. Right. Right. But I see for this metaphor, I'm using it as the kind of thing that doesn't you really don't really know what it does. And if you take it out, nothing's going to change in your life. Right. So there are some things in in the religion that um, that we don't know what the reason is it's there for. Like we don't we're not sure why we do this ritual or that ritual. There's a there's a prohibition on mixing wool and linen. Why? It's called shotness. No, there's no there's no good explanation for why. You could probably come up with a good explanation, but it's sort of baffling to the mind. Why? Why? I don't know. But I I I follow that. I do that. I I do try my best to not mix wool and linen because it's not hurting anything. But the second that appendix is inflamed or infected or burst, and it's hurting me. It's hurting the body. It needs to come out. It's the same thing in the in this metaphor for, for me with religion. It wasn't hurting anybody for many years, probably the fact that women were put into a second class role. All of a the sudden, there's a there's a maybe not all of a sudden, but there's a there's a a paradigm shift in understanding of the of equality and bringing women into into society as as equals with men. And now all of a sudden the prohibitions on women from being basically heard in, in public society or being able to lead in, in, uh, in a religious capacity or being able to witness documents and having legal power, all of a sudden now that's an appendix that's burst. It's no longer just an appendix that is just sitting there. Like my mm-hmm. appendix is just chilling, right? But the second it bursts, we need to get it out of there. We need to get it out of there and quickly. And I think that's the same as true as as we can come up on new new understandings of the world. We need to we need to adjust the tradition to to accommodate. Well, that's, and that's like the social interpretation, right? Because that's that's how that. So Genesis, for example, those words, and you know the way of being regarding. You know, gender and kind of position in culture. That's a social interpretation. Mm-hmm. There's a mystical interpretation of you know separation, and you know it's it's articulated in this this book in particular um, to yeah. to demonstrate you know uh, a psychological experience of duality and of kind of other and of right how we separated ourselves from our how speech has gone into exile right how that's a he that's his terminology of how how language has separated us from our divine nature has made us dual in nature has seen us as separate makes us feel separate from the person sitting across from us or yeah from the chair that we're sitting on or for from the universe and ultimately from god that we feel like there's something other than God, that, yeah. that or the divine. Well, and, and I, this is the thing you and I really kind of bonded over in our first 
conversation, which is the, there are layers of, there are layers in how we interpret, you know, so to apply, you know, Genesis to yeah. the social dimension is not the same as applying it to the kind of interior kind of in quotations, right? In right. Interior dimension. Right. And it's not the same as how to apply it to the transcendent. Right. And that's what I think has been so fascinating about conversing with you and kind of reading the, the book you pointed me towards is, is a reminder that how, how, of how many in any moment, how many different ways of interpreting not only my lived experience, but the, yeah, all the metaphor and deeper threads that, yeah. And beyond the literal, the texts that have been created yeah. that are, that are means by which human beings have tried to make sense of things that we struggle to make sense of. Yeah. And then we now, and you, you know, get to reflect on those. And really, I, I think one of the cool things about what you do is that you are able to kind of see because of the various limitations that are, you know, of any human being at one time, whether it's language or uh, a culture, right? The, the cultural sure. lens through which we see it. Yeah. You're able to look at things and deconstruct where people have misinterpreted these influential, this influential text. And I think that is just pretty radical. And well, I'm not going to take credit for that. These are people that have taught me. I'm trying to do my best to help uphold that. Well, you're you're in so. that lineage, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think that's one of the things, like to be to be divine, right? Is for all of us to recognize that you know this, we're in a stream, not creating our own kind of yeah original. Thinking. Hopefully, I'll leave something of yeah. value to it's original to us to be a good ancestor, right? That's my one of my goals is to be a good ancestor. Well, I want to. Oh, shoot, we've got limitations oh, on time because i've yeah. got um what are we missing out or what are we leaving out um when you think about this our conversation today um what are we not getting into Man, there's so much. <laughs> there's, I know there is, right? We, we maybe need to have a follow-up. Um, man. I don't know. I feel like we could talk for days. It's like, I don't know that there's something particular that I'm missing here beyond the the excitement of pulling out meaning in texts that are yet to be explored. In, in with the with the lens that I'm coming with and bringing that bringing that meaning to my life trying it on how I how I can integrate that in my life and how I can make that relevant to somebody yeah in their my, life the way that help them inform their lives in that way my my thought there is that you're you know because then I, I go okay like why so what why do that why reflect on text and because it moves the needle. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it provides you the ability to change your life, or I guess yeah, 
it makes it, it generates sufficient energy to change your life in a way that provides that gives you more meaning in life yeah it makes me closer to the divine i think in my own in the way that i see that it makes it helps me live a life that i think is more worthy and balanced and connected that's why it's not the text itself is just a vehicle for that yeah well i hope we can do it again yeah i'd love that thank you thanks for um thank you it's fun i don't know just i just enjoy talking to you thanks for sitting down really No, how was your day been? Loving in moderation On special occasions, girl Tell me how can we stop These walls from coming down And there's no one outside They can hear a sound No, babe I don't know what they used to stop a building From burning all over To be 
Back you in. 